Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Managing Editor of Television for Variety, and today my guest in New York is Esther Newberg. Esther is a partner with ICM Partners and the undisputed queen of publishing agents. She's always wonderfully outspoken, and here she weighs in on what it takes to get a book sold, her recent experience of shopping memoirs for everyone from Prince to Bob Iger, and the changing nature of film and TV licensing deals. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Let's talk about the book business. You guys have hit a real milestone. Uh, You've been the long been the dominant publishing department in the business. Everybody knows it. You have larger competitors, but ICM's book publishing uh, department just rocks. Um, But you hit a milestone this year of three uh, successive number one New York Times number one bestsellers by debut authors. Yes, we did. We had. Tell uh, us how that happened. A lot of a lot of it happens by by having good books, and and then the second way it happens is by having good luck, because we never quite know how the New York Times calculates their books. Uh, it's a bone of contention with a lot of agents these days. But the first book was a book by a young man in publishing who changed his name. He uses a pen name, A.J. Finn, and his book is. Woman in the Window. That was the first book, and my colleague Jen Jill was the agent. The second book was number one on the combined fiction and um, combined fiction list. It's, it's uh, ebooks and hardcover books, and that was Tara Westover's book, Educated, a nonfiction book. And the last book, and the hardest category to get to be number one in, is a book by uh, Tomi Adeyemi, and the book is called Children of Bone and Blood, and it's now been number one for three weeks, but she's up against some of the biggest names in YA publishing, so it's extremely difficult to get to be number one on that list. As a new, with an unknown, wholly new property. Exactly. She's a young African-American woman who went to Harvard. She's in her 20s, and this is the beginning of a series. These two, two of these books, Woman in the Window and Children of Blood and Bone, were acquired by 20th Century, and they're on the fast track, both of them, to being movies. The third book, Educated, was sold to the movies, I, I believe to, to 20th also, but because there are life rights involved, we, we don't know what will happen. We have a lot of other books on the list, and Hollywood becomes so important with those books. Those books had movie tie-ins, Red Mm -hmm. Sparrow, and um, can't quite think of anything else, Um, Lilac Girls, which will be a movie. It becomes that virtuous circle of the book promotes the movie, and the movie promotes the book. Let's back up a little bit and talk about how, in your role in in the department that you lead, in your role as agents, what is the hardest... What is the hardest part these days in packaging books for sale? How do you how do you go about? You have a you know a promising author, but a, not a name that anybody knows. What is the what is the challenging part in nurturing this talent and getting these getting these books sold these days? 
you need a good book to begin with. It's as simple <laughs> it's as that. It's all on the page. If you have a good book and you've developed any kind of a reputation in the business, then you pick up the phone and you call one of five or six editors who trust you. And even if it's a brand new author, uh, that, that gets sold. If it's nonfiction, you need a wonderful proposal for the most part, unless it's something like I sold uh, Bob Iger's book, and it was based on nothing on paper because he's the head of Disney and he's had a remarkable career. We only went to one publisher, and they bought it in the room almost because he was so amazingly articulate. What did... Um, and- with Bob Iger's book, what was it about that one publisher? What publisher did you go to and why? We went to Random House to the the editor's name is Andy Ward, who had edited George Saunders' 10th of December and Lincoln in the Bardo for me. He had come from the magazine world. He's a remarkable editor, and that's why I went to him and only to him. And I didn't want to parade Bob all over town. I thought it was not dignified for somebody who'd achieved really what he's achieved. Let's contrast this with somebody like a Bob Iger. When you sat down to talk with him, when he decided to get serious about writing a book, how do you how do you shape that pitch? How do you how do you shape that proposal? Or did you not have to? I didn't have to with him because he's one of those people who speaks in full paragraphs, <laughs> and he's describing, for instance, how he was picked. He was the only inside person who was um, being asked to uh, try out to be the chairman of the board. He tells the story in such a wonderful way that I knew he would charm the, the people in the room at, at a publishing house. And I, so I picked Random House because I know they'll do a, a really good job. Mm-hmm. And then back to talking about you know, a, an emerging author, what, how, what is the role of the agent in getting a, a, a Tomi Adeyemi ready to write that first book that will impress? We often, in the old days, we would get a chapter and a couple, and a couple of um, uh, a couple of chapters and an outline. Now, now we need an entire manuscript. So we're not shaping it so much as reading the whole manuscript and deciding whether it's good to go. Some of my colleagues actually act as first editors, something that I never do because I don't want them to then have to edit it again with you know whomever the person is who's bought the book. But sometimes it works out in, in a really good way, and and then we become cheerleaders. That's what we really are. We find people who've done other books in the same way. Uh, we make sure they have a publicity staff that knows what it's doing, what they're doing, and we're off and running. So it's interesting, though, to, in that role that, that some agents play as that first editor. Is that something when you're looking to, to hire and promote new agents is that is that a skill set that you now look for no that maybe you didn't no i don't look for that i would i'm in conflict with some of my colleagues about it because they they like it but i think it 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 means they're in the office until all hours of the night we already have enough to do just reading these manuscripts (laughs) um last weekend i had two 700 page books to read that are that were sold and they've just come i mean they're finished now and they've come in and that's a whole other thing after a book is finished, the things that you have to do. But no, I don't look for an editor in an agent. I want someone who can sell and who isn't, a, who, uh, isn't afraid to pick up the phone. So many people now just want to use email. I think it's still very effective when you pick an editor and you can describe it yourself and they can hear the passion you have for the book. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Talk about your team. You have quite a uh, quite a, a department of very strong and prominent women in ICM. Was that by design, or did you just happen to? I inherited a department of women. In fact, I in the when I came to the company four years ago, there were only women in the department. Mm. But there was the woman who found Graham Greene. There was the woman who found um, Tennessee Williams. Pretty good find. Exactly. They were something. And the woman who found Gone with the Wind, my very favorite. Uh, we now have three men in the department. <laughs> and that's, that's, the story. that's the unusual part, right? Very unusual. My partner, Sloan Harris, uh, of course, is a man. And um, he started in the mailroom at ICM. Mm-hmm. We have an office in Washington that's run by Rafe Segalen, who does a lot of uh, serious nonfiction. And we have uh, a young agent named Dan Kirshen, whose most prominent colleague is um, Michael Shaban and, and also um, Ann Patchett. I took him with me a couple of years ago because he likes music books to meet with Prince. We... we took three editors to Minneapolis to meet with Prince at the same time. It's never been done before because editors don't like to be making their pitches in the same room to the potential client, but we had to do it because I knew he would not want to meet individually with people the way sometimes authors do. And at one point he asked me who my favorite musician was, and I I put my head down. I was embarrassed. I said, well, I... I'm a Springsteen fan. And he said, <laughs> so you brought your own music guy with you, didn't you? Who knows my work. And Dan Kirshen does know uh-huh. his, did know his work. And we still have that book. It'll be out hopefully at next Christmas. Wow. And he, he wrote about 50 pages in, in his own handwriting. And we had a writer hired to work with him who knew as much about Prince as anyone alive. And um, we've sold the book in a lot of countries. And it will be a wonderful testament to a great songwriter and performer. And you, uh, he really hunkered down and wrote himself? Did, have you... I don't know if he hunkered down, <laughs> uh, but he wrote himself, and he wrote wrote it in longhand, and what we may do is actually show those the real pages. That's exciting. Is it compelling? Have you read it? Yes, it's about his family. And if you look at his, he has pictures of his family tree, and at the very top is this wonderful-looking man in a, in a uh, eight, 18th century suit and then then it fans out and the person at the top is a is white and a redhead almost and then it, it comes all the way down to prince because of course his uh, one of his relatives probably was raped by a slave for all i know i mean was raped by the slave owner mm-hmm. wow that's i mean when you really probe a family history that's right. that sounds uh, fascinating right. and who's the publisher in the us Random House. Oh, there you go. Okay, well, that's something to look forward to. Um, it, it, since you guys do, you know, since books almost seem like, you know, Springsteen had a terrific book. It sounds like Prince has a book. When celebrities get a mind to write a book, is it a challenge? It ever is it a challenge to to get some some people to really take it seriously? Like, do you have to really tell them like this is a real serious endeavor, not just something you're gonna knock off? Is that, is that an issue when somebody wants to write a memoir? Like, Occasionally it is, and, and sometimes you get lucky. 
I just sold a memoir that Scott Pelley of CBS has written, oh, and he wrote it himself because he didn't know that you weren't to, you didn't have to write the book ahead of time. <laughs> that was before it was sold. Really exciting before it was sold. Um, Tom Hanks did a short story collection last year, and he wrote every single story ahead of time. But there are people that a need writers mm-hmm. and. Uh, B want nothing to do with the book. They don't want to publicize it after it's out. <laughs> really? And they just think their name will carry the book. And that's, that makes for a very long day. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about um, the, you know, Hollywood's voracious demand for source material. You might have heard there's some 500-some TV shows, and probably at least half of them have some kind of, you know, previously published, or even sometimes, you know, before publication, yeah. things are being things are being licensed. How has that appetite and the the chase for hot properties to be even licensed even before publication, how has that changed the the business of agenting for authors? It's only changed in that there are so many new outlets. The voraciousness has always been there. In fact, in the past, I don't know how they really accomplished this, but Hollywood types were paying people in the publishing industry, probably assistants, $100 or so to sneak them copies of the book, which only added to the hype. For the most part, it didn't hurt anybody, but every once in a while it was aggravating that that happened. There is a... Now people don't care if their books are sold to television. For instance, we represented Margaret Atwood's books, and it was such a huge success on Hulu. Mm-hmm. But when I think when we all heard it, we were a little bit nervous, but not anymore. And because who you felt Hulu was kind of low profile for something a little like bit low the profile. Handmaid's Tale, exactly, yeah. and yet a wonderful job. They did a wonderful job, mm-hmm. and now there's another season. And of course, it pro- propels her books onto the list. We don't represent her as an author. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a media department in LA that represents some smaller agencies' media rights. Mm-hmm. And that's the case with, with the Atwood project. But it's a wonderful thing to be able to use the cover art from a, a mm-hmm. movie or from a television show. It really helps the books. Mm-hmm. But with a, a newer author and a, a new fiction property that has heat, how can you talk us through kind of how a deal is structured? Like when you do you get the incoming call from a studio executive? Do you make an outgoing call from somebody? How, how does it how does a deal come to it life? It happens in every possible way you can imagine. We have a media department. It's comprised of about six people now, and generally we'll send the manuscript as early as we possibly can, as soon as it's edited, out to them. They'll read it and they'll have some ideas, and sometimes they'll send it out at that point. Sometimes they'll say, you know, no one really knows about this person. Maybe we should wait until there are great reviews. Mm. And Mm -hmm. every once in a while, I know with uh, Children of Blood and Bone, the calls were incoming because people heard that she was very young. She was uh, an African-American student at Harvard. There was, you know, the whole backstory was wonderful. She was writing about Africa and its fantasy and people love that. So that was an incoming call, but I think the whole sale went down in a couple of days. It's different every single time. It sounds like that's a big role of the agent to know how the best way to get to build a market for. Sometimes, although I can't give us too much credit, sometimes it's just accidental. Uh-huh. But we'll take that too. 
How much in the you know in the business right now with sales generally uh, you know a, certainly a physical product generally declining? How how important would you say a film and TV or some sort of adaptation license is to the profitability of a book? It can be huge. Uh, Red Sparrow was a film that did I think eighteen million the first weekend. Um, wasn't it? Certainly wasn't uh, Black Panther. But the books, his the, the author's two books have been on the list since the before the movie mm-hmm. came out because of the pre publicity for the book was so strong for the mm-hmm. movie you have that Jennifer it helped Lawrence, the books. Yeah. exactly. And Jennifer Lawrence was all over the media saying things like, "Well, if you if you really want to see my breasts, I suggest that you go see this movie." And <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people went for that probably. Um, and uh, do you? I mean, do you find that? You know, there have been authors over the years famously resistant to having Hollywood adaptations. Do you find that authors that you're working with, they can't wait to try to get a film or TV deal? Or is it still a, is it still a little bit of a concern for people? I can think of one person who didn't want to have her books sold, but I, I, she would be very unhappy if I mentioned who <laughs> she is. And now apparently there's an adaptation coming out that she's thrilled about. But for the most part, these writers are really excited if they hear the word movie. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is that many of them are just optioned for a very little amount of money and um, takes a long time for a movie with a with a little option to turn into a movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas with these, these big number one books, they're racing to try to get them done. To build off the heat, right. Exactly. What is the typical, I'm just curious, the typical time frame for an option? Is it a year? Is it two? Is it generally 18 months? They tell, by the time the contract is signed, (laughs) you're six months in. Mm -hmm. It's so different, a contract being signed in LA, you need a deal memo, and then you need the actual contract, and everybody's got lawyers. And it's still an, excuse the expression, a gentleman's agreement business in New York. You don't need a deal. Once you make the deal, you don't need a deal memo. Mm -hmm. You wait for the contract which probably will come in two weeks. And then our lawyers go through it, goes back to the publishing house, some things are changed, then the author gets it, signs it, and boom, they're paid. Not like that in Hollywood, (laughs) where the deal memo is because everyone's afraid that they won't tell the truth or that the, the, the various clauses will change. So they have to be very careful, and it takes way too long. Are there rights that you're finding that studios and networks, are there more expansive rights now that there's sort of more platforms to exploit IP? Are you they, finding? They will rarely give up play rights. Mm. The author or the, the publisher? The, the, no, the, uh, the studio wants oh, those rights as, as part of the film rights. Uh, when you think of um, all the plays, all the movies that have been turned into play, even even something like Frozen. Right. I haven't been to Broadway to see how the ice holds up, but <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. And um, but other rights, not so much. Although in publishing now, and you'll love this, there's there are now morality clauses. Oh no. Yes, Random House put one in the other day, and I told um, an author of mine who who was so excited that she had a morality clause, Ina Garten, because, of course, she is, you know, <laughs> America's most perfect person, and she's never going to have a problem. She said, I love to think that maybe, 
you know, people think that I had to have it in there for God knows what I was doing. So, <laughs> I mean, it's for some maybe a license to misbehave. <laughs> exactly. How um, how would you say another trend that we've seen with authors is authors becoming very involved with their adaptations? You know, either writing the writing screenplays or teleplays, or you know, having a real not just a not just a vanity producing credit, but a real producing credit is that um, is that something that you're seeing more and more of? There's a lot of resistance in Hollywood to letting an author get that involved. What they want is for the author not to badmouth the movie. Yeah. yeah. So we're seeing them uh, getting a credit, like executive producer or something in that vein, but or consultant, especially in television, they're almost always consultants on the film, but they still want real screenwriters. They don't want to be messing around with somebody who's not done it before. That's a hard sell. Very hard sell. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, let's talk about just in the, the pure book business. Um, of course, it's been more than a decade, but we've heard so much about the, you know, the, the, the growth of the ebook business really cutting into, cutting into the, you know, money-making potential of books. Is that, has that leveled out at all in terms of, I know there have been some groundbreaking agreements between digital publishers and, and publishers and authors. How, how is that sort of marketplace right now? It did level out. There was a moment in time where we thought it would, there would never be another hardcover book. <laughs> really? It was that bad? Well, a certain alarmists thought that. Uh, those of us who still like to pick up an actual book and have that feeling, it's a special feeling, the didn't think it feeling, exactly, yeah. but the problem with the ebook is that if that you, if you don't have to wait for the paperback edition because of the price, that's the business that's hurt. The, the actual paperback editions of the book are not selling what they once did. Mm. The hardcover books, there's still a huge number of people that want to buy hardcovers, um, and there are people who, for instance, will go on vacation and they'll they'll download five books on the Kindle, but they'll take one book with them. Uh, I bump into people like that all the time. It's not; it hasn't killed our business the way we thought it would. Maybe, and when you say that, the the panic period was that like ten years ago, fifteen years ago, as Amazon and the Kindle started to come online. Yes, when they when they both started to come online, we thought that was it. Wow. Um, is it fair to say though that the that just on a pure the royalty rate for an ebook is lower than if you sell a hardcover book? Yes, and getting okay. actual hardcover. numbers from Amazon is always an amusing um, it, it's it's amusing to us to try to get any real facts from Amazon. I hate the fact that Donald Trump has accused Amazon of costing the post office money and. And being on his side really gives me a terrible headache. But Amazon is difficult occasionally mm-hmm. to deal with, and we would like a little more transparency. Uh, there's nothing like hearing about a book on a Sunday, and your local bookstore doesn't have it, and you go on Amazon, and boom, it's yours. Mm-hmm. And you understand why people like that. Um, if you can find a local bookstore, that's one of the problems. Well, I remember I remember walking up Madison Avenue hundreds of years ago, 
And there was one bookstore at 78th and Madison, and the guy would come to the door and say, I have a book. I know you'll love it. And I wasn't in the business then. I mean, there were bookstores every four feet on mm-hmm. Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. But independent bookstores are having a comeback. And it's not just the coffee that they serve or the fact that you can sit there and read forever. It's those little shelf talkers that tell you what the book is about or they actually know what the books are and they develop a base of people who like a certain sort of book and they'll reach out to them. Mm-hmm. It makes a big difference. People love that. Mm-hmm. But especially book people. Book people, and, exactly. And do you find when your authors do book tours and they do the slog of going to doing the book signings and the author appearances makes a difference? It can Well, it makes needle? a difference. It makes a difference the first two weeks because that's when your book either does or doesn't get on the New York Times list. So pre-sales, whatever you do to pre-sell your book so that on the first day that books are counted, maybe you'll have seven or 8,000 books sold, and that counts for the first week. And it's the rate of sale you have in the first week that determines whether you get on the Times list. And that's... So- that's that calculation, that mysterious calculation that you were referring yes. to. Yes. What what for for a book that isn't, you know, Neil Gaiman or James Patterson, but what what is the benchmark for success in terms of consider sales that are considered strong for somebody that's not an A list writer? Is it the a couple hundred sh- thousand copies? Oh no, God no. It would shock you. Shock me. Okay. In the first week it, let's say um, a a, uh, a best-selling author is about to come out. Uh, that book may sell uh, in the first week a total of thirty thousand copies, and the rest of the books, uh, two through fifteen on the Times list, will be in the tens and the mm. sevens and the fours, thousands, which is a shockingly low number. If you were to equate that to a movie, there would be two people in the theater all over America. Mm. So not doesn't take very many books to get on the on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And a great sale, depending on what your advance has been, because of course the publisher pu- publisher can lose a lot of money if they pay a million dollars and the book doesn't sell a couple of hundred thousand, they're in trouble because they're in the red. But if you pay $100,000 for a book, then financially, if you sell a serious twenty-five or 30,000 copies, you're in very good shape. Everybody will ultimately make money. Mm-hmm. So that, that explains the, why the economics have definitely, have definitely come down and why the yes. aftermarket licensing is... The audio uh, market is now very hot again. Really? I don't mm-hmm. know if it's because... Um, People are running and listening to books or if they're driving and listening to books, but they are listening to books and it's one of the hottest areas in book publishing. And that's a whole, is that a, do you tend to do, you do like a, a package deal with a publisher? Well, for we that, try or, not or to give them. a separate negotiation? It's part of the negotiation. They try not to give up those rights because they, they've now figured out too that it's a really hot area. But sometimes we'll take less advance money in order to keep the audio rights because that's how many copies you can sell an audio. 
Wow. Are there any particular companies or platforms that you think have, are been, have been fueling the audio? Yes, and they're all owned by Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> back to Amazon. Back to all Amazon. All lead back. Yes. Yeah. Do you, uh, have, you get, have you all established a relationship over there? Oh, yes. They to... come to our offices all mm-hmm. the time, and they make presentations. And I'm always getting them and saying, is it possible when you show your PowerPoint, you can have a couple of ICM books? On the screen, would that kill you? Since we had, just this year, we've had three number one books. And I don't need to see other people's books, really. <laughs> Were they receptive? Yeah, well, they're not exactly a laugh riot. But um, no, they've never listened in all these years, actually. Are you surprised that there has never really emerged, in, in, just in, purely in the book? I mean, Amazon is the you know the retail, the, the literal Amazon jungle. But are you surprised in, in all this time that there hasn't really been a real strong competitor in the book area, in the online space for, for Amazon? I'm sure you probably wish there was. I wish there was. And uh, in the same way that suddenly there's a Hulu and suddenly right. um, Netflix and suddenly ATT when they buy um, HBO will suddenly be in the making movie business. Right. And, um, but it's they look at the market and they think it's not big enough. You're not going to have a billion-dollar movie, a, a book, the way Pan- Black Panther did. You're mm-hmm. just not going to have it for the most part. You'll have you'll have Michael Wolf's book uh, once in a you know four or five years, a book that just out of nowhere you never think it's going to work. Um, the author's other books never sold that sort of in those numbers, and boom, it, there it is. But it's rare. So who wants to open up a whole business doing that again? Mm-mm. And they're so far ahead now, yeah. Amazon. that And publishers have consolidated. Remember, there are only five big houses now. Mm-hmm. When you send a book out to Random House and you want to send it to other great editors, you'll find that those editors are at Crown, part of Random House Group, Knopf, part of the Random House Group, Valentine, part of the Random House Book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, and now Penguin, Viking, it's all under one umbrella. If they talk to each other more, we'd be in bigger trouble. Hopefully they won't listen to this podcast and know that. <laughs> if they did know that we were, sell, we were sending the book to seven of their imprints, they might not bid against each other. Sounds like there's at least competition even within oh, there within is. the imprints. Yeah. Yes, well, there is. Leave it to leave it to, to people in the media business <laughs> to be competitive. What would you say, Esther, is the either the hardest or the biggest change in your job in the last decade or so? Things that things that you have to do now that you never had to deal with before. Well, in part, you have to help the publicity people mm. because there's such young kids doing it at publishing houses. And if you're in my side of the business, and chances are we now own a division that represents uh, people on the Today Show and Good Morning America and things like that. So we can pick up the phone and call them directly and say, look, do me a favor. I know you don't have many authors on, but this is important. Could you please put them in the, at least in the nine o'clock hour or something? And, and the young people at the publishing house can't do that. Mm-hmm. So we do... More of that. Um, because ICM now has a division that exactly. represents broadcast talent. Right. That's, an interesting, that's yeah. an interesting level of connection I hadn't yeah. put together. That's great. And then there is um, 
as I said, there are some agents in at my company who do a lot of internal editing before it goes to the publisher, and we never did that in the past. Um, in part because you would often get a novel, if you can believe this, you'd get you'd get two chapters of the novel and a little summary of what it was about, and you'd actually sell that book as a novel. Sometimes it would come in and it wasn't any good, <laughs> and they'd have to pay the money back because it would be rejected. Now, at least, you can, you can honestly say to someone, unless they're a world-class novelist, you have to write the whole thing mm-hmm. or I can't sell it. Mm-hmm. They don't know how it's going to turn out. So that's really got a, that's a commitment from the writer. They commitment. Have, they're to doing it find for free. A way to, yeah. Yes, to make a living. But Mary Higgins Clark used to, when she was widowed very early on, she would get up at five in the morning and she would write for an hour and a half and then she'd go to work and she managed to feed all those children that she has that way. But people don't want to do that anymore. There's a lot of commitment and a lot of dedication. There is. Obviously. What, Esther, thank you so much for your time with us. T- tell us what on your radar we should be, uh, what's on the horizon for you that we should be watching out for? What what projects or properties are you most excited about? In a couple of weeks, you're going to laugh really hard because Carl Hyacin and Roz Chast have collaborated to do a graduation speech book. <laughs> but it's a an anti-graduation speech book. It's called Assume the Worst, <laughs> the graduation speech you'll never hear is the subtitle. And then in June, Seymour Hirsch, the man who uncovered the scandal at Milai, Abu Ghraib. Renowned who, investigative Renowned journalist. investigative reporter. Has a book coming from Knopf called Reporter. That's, I think, the best thing he's ever done. In the fall, Michael Beschloss has a book called Presidents of War, All the Wars that an American President Started. Mm-hmm. starts with um, the War of 1812 and goes through Vietnam. And Ina Garten has a new cookbook called Cooking Like a Pro that will... I don't ever worry about that book. <laughs> a lot of great projects on the horizon. Esther, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Strictly Business.